Take note of the questions on the screen this morning. It's good to see you all this morning. I hope that you all are are doing well. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3, and Lord willing, we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. Last week, we finished chapter 2, where Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. He scouts out the whole city, the walls, and the the gates of the city, and it's exactly what he has heard them to be, to be destroyed and in rubble and to have been burned. And he calls the people to, to remember who they are, to remember who they were, and to remember whose city this is, to look and see how God has provided that in this moment now that they are being raised up as God has raised up Nehemiah, to rebuild and to build these walls again and the gates and set them in their place. They heard the call of Nehemiah to to rise and build, and they strengthened their hands for for the good work that was ahead of them. They faced a little bit of opposition from some of the governors of the surrounding region around, around Jerusalem. We'll talk about some of that opposition next week. It was chapter 2, is more in words, it's going to escalate from there. But in chapter 3, we see the people getting to work. Getting to work. Now, if you haven't read chapter 3 yet, it's another list. I know how much you all love lists by this point. But this is a list of all who rebuilt and repaired the city. We have a lot to read, and forgive me as I may stumble with some of these names. So let's look to Nehemiah chapter 3, and let's read this together. Nehemiah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then Elishashib, the high priest, rose and went with his brothers, the priests, And they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of Hundred, as far as the Tower of Haniel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasaiah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechai, the son of Meshzibel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Jehodiah, the son of Pasiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah repaired the gate of Yeshanah, and they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired, repaired Methiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Marathite, the men of Gibeon, and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Hoshiah, goldsmith, repaired. Next to them, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. 
Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jehadiah, the son of Harumph, repaired opposite the, of this house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Malachiah, the son of Harim and Hasub, the son of Pahuth Maoab, repaired another section of the Tower of Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Hashaiah, the, yeah, you got that one. My tongue's getting tied. Rulers of the half district of Jerusalem repaired he and his daughters. Hanun, the inhabitants of Zenoah, repaired the valley gate. They repaired it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. They didn't want to go to the dung gate, right? That's it. That's the line we draw. Malachijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the districts of Beth Hakrim, repaired the dung gate. Man, he sacrificed. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kohosea, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He repaired it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalah, the son of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, the ruler of the half-district of Beth-zur, repaired to the point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Benai. Next to him, Hashabiah, the ruler, half-districts of Kaliah, repaired the districts. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavi, the son of Henadad, ruler of the half-districts of Kilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the ruler of Mes- Mizpah, repaired another section opposite of the ascent to the armory of the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabiah, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Elishahib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakuz, repaired another section of the door of the house of Elishahib to the end of the house of Elishahib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hasub repaired opposite of this house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside the house, his own house. After him, Benuai, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress. And to the corner, Palal, the son of Azariah, repaired opposite the buttress and the towers projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pedadiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Athel, repaired to the point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, Tekoaites repaired another section opposite of the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Aphiel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Imner, repaired opposite of his own town house. 
After him, Shimeiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shemaliah, the Hanu, the sixth son of Zalphiah, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malachijah, the son of the golds- one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite of the mustard gate into the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber and the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This, too, is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear his holy, inspired word, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. This is quite the interesting chapter. It's actually more interesting if you read it out loud. Yet, it's another list. It's a different kind of list. In it, we see all of those who have built and all of those who are repairing. We see all the the different groups, where they worked and how they worked and what they accomplished. We see where they lived. We even see what some of their professions were. Now, let's be honest. Not exactly the best text to preach on Valentine's Day. We should be going to John 3.16 or 1 John chapter 4. But this is where the Lord providentially has us. Now, this chapter is kind of inserted in, into the book, into the middle of this narrative. It, it reads more like something we would want at the back of a book, like in the appendix. Of, of, of the book than, than more in the, the middle of, the, of the, the narrative. But we have a lot of engineers and training engineers in our church, and so these are the kind of chapters that they dig. They, they like this. This is, the, this is the details and gives great attention to, the, to this particular very big building project of how all of it would get done. They love this stuff, as I think they do. I'm just stereotyping, y'all. But for the rest of us, what does this chapter hold for us? Well, first, did you happen to notice, and maybe you were just overwhelmed by all the names, did you happen to notice how many people were involved and and how they were involved around working all over the city? Now, some of you all have study Bibles, and you can look, and there's a page of the layout of the, of the whole city. And eight all around the city is named of the particular places that, that these people, particular individuals, worked in the particular sections of the city that it, they worked. It's amazing. They, they rebuilt all of the walls of the city. This this chapter speaks very loudly to the motivation in the organization of Nehemiah as their leader. To lead these people strategically and efficiently, and we'll talk about that a little bit this morning. Over 40 different groups of people are named and are organized. Some people who lived in the city and other groups of people that lived outside of the city, who still all came together in a relatively short amount of time to do something that they could not do for decades. They relied on the promises of God 
they loved their neighbor. And they practiced faith in getting a project done, getting this project done, because this project at this time in redemptive history was at the heart of God's plan for his kingdom. Second, I believe that Nehemiah's story here in chapter 3 is giving us a small glimpse or giving us a glimpse into now what we can experience as the church. Brothers and sisters, if you love the church, and I hope that you do, then reading this chapter can be quite exciting. I say exciting because this is an example of what the church can be. A powerful and united people in Christ. Indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live by faith, to trust in the promises of God, and to powerfully proclaim the gospel. To love and serve one another. To love our enemies and to accomplish great things for the kingdom of God. The unity of the people in chapter 3 isn't an anomaly. Unity in the church of Jesus Christ should not be an anomaly. It should be normative. If the church and its people and its leaders are obedient to the Word of God. So I want to share with you this morning three observations then about this chapter in unity that I think will be encouraging to us as the church. First, there is unity through serving one another, serving one another, excuse me, and serving with one another. If you're a contractor and you've been contracted to, um, to build a house, one of the most important parts of being a contractor, one of the first tasks that they have as a contractor, if they get the plans and figure out what the, what's going on in the property and the surveying and all that, is to, is to then get the subcontractors organized. And the subcontractors then would be the framers, the electricians, plumbers, carpenters, flooring guys, finishing guys. You get, you get the picture. So you would hire the contractor because they know the business and they know who to hire to do the particular job that you want them to do. Hopefully, skilled contractors that can build within the budgets of the build. And that's probably the hardest part of the job, being a contractor, is not only dealing with, I think, the customer, but also dealing with the organization of these particular skilled professionals, these subcontractors, making sure that they show up on time and, and then get their job done in the allotted amount of time so it doesn't back this guy up and this guy. And let me tell you, if you've ever done any kind of building contractor stuff, it never ends up that way. But imagine this situation here in Nehemiah when pretty much everyone that we just read is not a skilled laborer. They're eager. They want to build. They show up to, to work. But honestly, most of them probably have no idea what they are doing. Imagine then the kind of contracting skills 
required and the organization and patience that is required in order to get this job done. Nehemiah is showing himself to be quite the, the, the gifted leader, the leader that was required for such a task. It's, it's almost as if the Lord had planned it. Insert small laugh here. <laughs> Weed sovereign grace. <laughs> there we go. Uh, if I have to cue you, it doesn't work. But you get it. But what is also important besides the organization and being able to get all these unskilled laborers to do something pretty amazing is that we see a leader and several other leaders demonstrate humility. Look at verse 1. Right here in the beginning, it's kind of stunning. Named here, the first name mentioned, Elisheb, the high priest. willingly stood up and led the other priests out to scoff Nehemiah. No. They got to work. The priest, the high priest, led these other priests out to, to get to work, to rebuild what is called the, the, the Sheep Gate, which is at the northern part of the, of the city. Which, which happens to be outside of the, the eastern wall of the, of the temple. It's called the sheep gate because this is the gate where the, the sheep and other sacrifices were led into the city then to the temple. The priests, yes, had a vested interest in the rebuilding and the construction of this area near, near the temple between the sheep gate and the, and the two towers not only for their safety, but also to guard the holiness of the worship of God in the temple. They worked not only for their benefit and for their city and for their nation, but for the Lord. For the Lord and for the, to be a blessing on His people. It's pretty obvious to say that this kind of work is not what priests did. That's not their skill. That's not their talent. That's not their calling. Their call is the law and the ceremonial worship and the sacrificial system, not construction, not civil engineering, or even knowing how to use a shovel or trowel. But that's what they did. Under the leadership of Nehemiah, we see servant leadership. We see leaders leading by example. And it was by their own accord, voluntary and cheerful for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Now, unfortunately, as many of us know, there are some in this world who are better at division and disunity and complaining from the sidelines than anything else. The unfortunate reality is that the, the place where we have met these kind of people has been on Sunday mornings. There are those who are always grumbling about something, usually of the most petty things. One of the worst I've ever heard was flowers. 
If all you get from a Sunday is how bad a flower arrangement looks or how there was no flowers at the front or the flowers were put somewhere else and put in the wrong place, then there is something seriously wrong. Seriously wrong. Well, verse 5, welcome the nobles from Tekoa. The Tekoaites. It says, they would not stoop, think about this, to serve the Lord. They would not humble themselves to serve the Lord. Now, I'm sure they had their reasons, right? One of the things that I read was the location of Tekoa being southeast of uh, uh, Bethlehem was closer to the region where the governor Gresham was. And Gresham was named earlier in chapter 2 as being one of the governors that were starting to oppose Nehemiah and Israel. And maybe it was him having sway over, over them to not participate or to work against their own people. However, this work was beneath them as nobles. They were too good for this kind of work. Have you ever met people like that? But the Tekoaites, the people, the other, the regular people of Tekoa, you see there in verse 5 and verse 27 that they served alongside others. Well, if our nobles aren't going to go, we're going. We're going to go work. So contrast these nobles with the priests and the high priests who got their hands dirty. Contrast them to the other leaders and rulers that we read about in the chapter from the, from the Levites and the other officials who worked. These nobles didn't have a spirit of humility about them. Nobility isn't just about having the right name or lineage, but it's about character and humility to serve. That's being noble. Humble servant leadership is absolutely on display in chapter 3 by these priests, rulers, officials, and even Nehemiah. But brothers and sisters, we have an example to us that pales them in comparison to the one we know, and that is Jesus himself. We have to look to Jesus. Because he demonstrates to his disciples and as he demonstrates to us now as his disciples, the measure of servant leadership for us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered all of his disciples in the upper room to celebrate the Passover together, and he instituted the, the, the Lord's Supper. But also on that night, Jesus did one of the most awkward and yet the most humbling acts of service to his disciples. He stooped down. And I'm using this word very intentionally. He stooped down as a servant and he washed the feet of his disciples. Why does the sovereign king of the universe wash his disciples' feet? For two reasons. First, it was to exemplify to everyone the lowliness of what the Son of God has come to do in the incarnation. To suffer 
and to die on the cross. And in a sense, when Peter rejects, and Peter doesn't want his feet to be washed, this is the conversation that Jesus has. If I don't wash your feet, then you have nothing to do with me and my kingdom. And second, it was to provide the disciples an example. To these these men who would lead the church, and now to to all of his followers, that, that this is the bar. That this is the the, the standard of Christian humility and servant leadership. In John 13, this is what Jesus says in verse 12. He says, when he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? He's going to tell us right now why he did this. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus is showing us that he is the servant. He is the Lord, he is the teacher, but he has come to serve. Mark 10, 4, 10, excuse me, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Jews here in Nehemiah were looking at this city and its walls and its gate and this job that was required of them as a sense of their identity in their distinctiveness from other peoples of the land. And for the restoration of the the city was a, a sign to them of God's redemptive presence among them. But we do not look to walls and gates or buildings. We look to Christ. We look to Christ and we look to the the cross, which is our ongoing demonstration of the the power of of God's love for us. Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us that while for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. As for those who were once enemies, we are now ransomed by the death of Christ and his work on the cross. We are given new life in Christ. And then that is what changes us. That and then is what changes us. It's what marks us out to be different. His love for us by the power of the cross and His resurrection and the new life that we have from Him, that makes us different. It transforms us. It then shows us how we are to love. We are different by the way that we love one another. Different in how we forgive one another. We are different in the way that we care for one another. We are different in our fellowship with one another. We are different in how we sing with one another. We are different in how we submit to one another. 
We are different in how we tell one another the truth and love. We are different in how we bear with one another. We are different in how we deal with one another when we offend one another. We actually use the Bible. We are different in how we teach one another and how we encourage one another. We're different in how we do good for one another and how we pray for one another. And in all of these ways, what are we doing? We are serving one another. And the example of our serving is Christ, who stooped down and washed the disciples' feet. And how we serve one another shows how we are loving one another. We are different, like our Savior, who showed us the example of humility. Very simply, this is gospel-shaped humility, and it's to be among the body of Christ. And this humility in serving one another will always promote Christ-centered unity in the church. Search for ways to serve. Pray for ways to serve. Initiate ways to serve one another. Find a church that is unified in the gospel, and you will find a gospel culture of people that love one another and are serving one another. Second point of the sermon. First was unity, serving one another. Second, unity provides strength. The high priests and the priests, as we already talked about, they, they jumped in and they worked to, to rebuild the portion of their walls and their, and their gates. But they weren't the only ones, right? There were all kinds of people who were involved in the work. I think I already mentioned that there were over 40 different groups named. Priests, Levites, temple servants, goldsmiths, merchants, officials, rulers, just regular individuals, people who lived outside of the city, people who lived inside the city, uh, people who lived in Jericho, Gibeon, Mizpah. And if you look at verse 12, you see even there there's this man named Shalom. He was a ruler, and he repaired some walls. And guess who he brought out with him? He brought his daughters out to help rebuild the walls. That's an amazing picture of unity. This wasn't usually the work that women would do in the Old Testament. It's like back during World War II when, when the, most of the men were called up to, to fight the, the war here at home. Many women had to, to go to work in the factories and the mills for the first time to make ammo and uniforms and airplanes and tanks and bombs for the war effort. So what we see in all of this is great organization and delegation and coordination and unity. And all of that gave them unity, which gave them strength to do the job. Such as all the groups of people from outside the city who joined to build. What interests do they have for the city. I mean, listen, if, 
Atlanta said, hey, we need some help covering some potholes in the city. All of Georgia come. I ain't going. They can take care of their own dang potholes, right? We got our own to deal with. But they called everyone, and they came, and they, they build. This wasn't just a civil defense project for the city of Jerusalem to them. This was God's city. This was the city of David. This was the, the city where the temple of the Lord was. This is the place where God had chose to, to make his name dwell. It wasn't just the place. It was the place of God's presence. Did you notice also the amount of organization in this chapter? If you look at all the different sections of walls being built, the people that were assigned to these particular walls were generally people who lived right next to the wall in that area. You can look throughout the passage and you'll see that, that these people were building like virtually right next to their house. That was very smart to do. I don't care about the potholes in Atlanta. But I do care about the pothole on Josh Deal. You get it? I, I, they cared about the walls. The priests, they worked near the Temple Mount. Uh, Jedediah had a portion near his house. The same for Benjamin and Hasub and others. Of course, that's pretty convenient. On lunchtime, they can go take a break and walk home and have a meal with their family. But that kind of organization was intentional. It was ensured to be, to be skilled and committed that they were going to do a great job. You would want the strongest and the best walls near your house. Personal interest is a strong motivator. But what lies behind all of that organization and what lies behind the people from the outside uh, from the city who lived miles and miles away from the city, who came to help rebuild the city, what lies behind that was this collective responsibility to one another as family, as the people of God. They were family. And they knew it. The other people of the land, as Nehemiah said back in chapter 2, they had no portion and no claim to Jerusalem because it wasn't their city. But it was their city. This is our city. This is our portion. This is all of our portions. And that identity, as we spoke about last week by so much, gave them the unity that they needed as God's people in God's place. And that gave them strength to build. The people of God, Philippians 1, 27-28, the, the people of God standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Brothers and sisters, church unity is a very precious thing. And it should be recognized when it's found. Unity in the body of Christ is beautiful and glorious. And I can tell you that for most of my church life experience, I have prayed and I have desired for this kind of unity. Church unity should be more prevalent in our time. But unfortunately, as we know, it is not. I mean, when you call yourself the church, that's what should be normal. 
but out, rather it's become an anomaly. What makes a church unified is not our shared cultures, our common interests, our politics, our race, or even our nationalities. Those are good, and those are helpful to relate on some level, but if that is all we have, then that's not unity. We've only achieved carnal civility. That's carnal. And yet as the church, our unity is far more. It is far deeper. It is a bond that gives us our strength. It's family. It's the family of God. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 12, after the Apostle Paul instructs the church on the Lord's Supper, he says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. We are all many members, but we are one body with one spirit, the body of Christ. Oh, there is more. Ephesians 2, verse 19 says, So then you are no longer stranger and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of what? Are we built on the foundation of our common interest to go play really terrible at golf? Besides Patrick. or to do go fishing, or, to, or, or our politics, or anything else? No! We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The Word of God! That's what we're unified on. It does not matter where you are from, what color your skin is. We are united in Christ. We are far more in membership and family knitness in Christ than even we are with some of our own family members by blood. Because we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, right? These are the many members being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's us. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. The household of God being built up on the cornerstone of Christ Jesus. We are being built together into the dwelling place of God 
by God, the Holy Spirit. And did you also see that we're not only being dwelt into this holy dwelling place of God, by God, but it's also for God. Did you see that? That it's for God. To His glory, He is building us up. They were rebuilding Jerusalem, the place of the presence of God. But we have been built up together in Christ Jesus, the presence of God. We, the church, is the presence of God. We are not just individuals who happen to show up together to gather together. But we are unified in Christ. We are the household of God. It's us. It's we, the people. Not a building. Not a wall. This unity in Christ as our cornerstone, the one body, the household. Brothers and sisters, that is our strength. <laughs> Together. Us. We. What God has done and what God is doing amongst us, that is our strength. And Jesus prayed for that. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for that. He said, I do not ask for these things, these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all, all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. <laughs> Jesus has prayed that we would be one. One body, one family, as he and the Father are one. And in our unity, we display what? We display God. We display His glory. Beloved, our unity gives us strength. And it is given to us by God, for God. Lastly, unity is to build everyone up. Unity is to build everyone up. Now, chapter 3 is really a, a summary of what we're going to see over the next two and a half chapters or so. But the whole idea of this chapter, again, is what they accomplished in this, this unity, and it's amazing. They rebuilt all the walls. By Nehemiah 6 is when the wall, we'll see all the walls to be completed, the project to be completed. Again, I'm, I'm sure there were individuals in this project that had some skill. There was probably some skilled engineers for the wall and skilled laborers who knew how to, to lay the mortar to make the bricks and, and, and to do all, all, all of those things and who knew how to train everyone else to do those things. But what's amazing here is, is really none of those are listed in specific ways in chapter 3. 
the teamwork here was at its very best. And this list is to, is to uh, encourage to encourage us. And it's an encouragement that everyone got involved. Well, besides the nobles of the Tekoites. That no matter how poor you may be, or no matter how much talent you may have or not have, or how gifted you are, or not gifted, or skilled, or not skilled, it was an every-member ministry. I think in our culture today, we have become very dependent on the experts. We need experts. We need professionals. I do not doubt that. Many of you are experts and professionals. But often with the special credentials such as doctors receive and scientists and politicians and researchers and lawyers and psychologists, in our culture today, they, they tend to be the end-all spokespersons on pretty much everything now. They've created their own special power base in our society. And man, do they wield that power by telling us how we should do everything. How to eat, drink, sleep. How we are to enjoy things or not enjoy things. How we are to relate to one another. Listen, I was sick a few weeks ago. I went to the doctor, and I'm grateful to the Lord for his advice and his prescription. But also, have you noticed that with certain credentials and a particular viewpoint, it gives these experts the right to speak with absolute impunity? Call them a doctor, or even worse now, as scientists, and their view is always absolute. They cannot be wrong. Science has now become infallible until it changes. That view of this over-dependence on experts and professionals has found its way into the culture of the church. The church tends to now hire professionals to do all of the work of the ministry. Because we have this mindset about us that when we want something done, we want it to be done the very best, the highest of level. You know, the way that, a, that an expert can give us, the way that a, a professional can, can give us. But that's not what we see in Nehemiah chapter 3. And that's especially what we do not see in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up every way into him who is the head, into Christ, 
from whom the whole body, joined together and held together by, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The pastor, teacher, and elders are given. You see that there, right from the beginning of that passage. They're given as gifts to the church, but not as the professionals or the experts that do everything, but to equip the church, to equip the saints to do what? To do the work of the ministry. The elders and the pastors and teachers are given to train and to prepare the members of the church for the work of the ministry, which is what? The building up of the body of Christ. We together, everyone builds the body up. To what end? As it says in Ephesians 4, to attain all of us in faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Do you know what that means, older brothers? That means that we are to see these young men to be equipped to be faithful, to be strong, to be courageous men like Jesus, to train, to disciple, to lead, and to be a godly example to them so that they will be ready to be faithful and caring, mature husbands and fathers, that they would be strong in the Word of God, that they may lead their wives and children, and maybe even this church as the next generation of elders and deacons. And doesn't that work bless everyone? Doesn't that work build everyone up, not just men, but also women? Bring up the men, and the women will flourish. So that as the body of Christ is working properly, the body will grow, building itself up in love. The unity that we see in Nehemiah chapter 3, isn't just a unity that builds up a select few, but it was for building up them all. Unity for us in the church and the body of Christ is not just for the select few that build, but it's when we all are participating. And that builds up the whole body. I want to close this morning by speaking personally to you all. The things that I've spoken this morning and hopefully giving some of an image of what gospel-centered unity is, these aren't things that we are striving toward together. But brothers and sisters, I hope you have the eyes to see that this is something that we are experiencing in the present. Gospel-centered unity isn't something that we're just continually trying to grasp toward, but it's something that we already now experience in the present. Mm -hmm. 
I would have never thought that as a pastor, I would have so much joy in doing ministry with you all. And I do not mean this in a a derogatory way to anyone else in any way. But this is the best church I have ever been a member of. I'm not just saying that because I'm an elder. I'm not just saying that to puff anyone up. It is not because of me. It is not because of anyone else. But it is only by the grace of God that he has used all of us together. If it was just me, we would be in a pretty lousy place. But it was the Lord. It's all together. This church, us, we, the membership, we enjoy together in unity that is biblical. And it is beautiful. And it is precious. And it is reviving of a weary soul at times. Now, we still have further to go on this journey. We still have more building up to do of, of, of one another. We still have to continually strive for that unity. Let's not let go or, 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 or loosen our, our grip. We still have to hold firm to the truth. And we still have to strive to love one another. I get it. But let us continue to serve and love one another. Continually striving in unity in the gospel as our strength. Let nothing else usurp the place of the gospel and the word of God as being the foundation of our unity. And let's continue to build one another up. Because when everyone else, when everyone is built up, There's unity. And just as we saw in Nehemiah chapter 3, that they all rose up and built and they strengthened their hands to do the work. Brothers and sisters, let's build together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that it would have its full effect in our hearts and our lives this morning for your glory. We thank you, O God, for what you have done in, even in our midst, and we are so thankful for it. And for that, we give you all the glory, we give you all the, the praise, for the blessings of the grace that is extended to one another, the, the mercy of forgiving one another and loving one another, to bear with one another, to build up one another, to teach one another. Truly, this has been by your good hand. And how we see in your scriptures how you have, you're answering that. We're seeing those, those promises being fulfilled in the body of Christ, this one body. But would you continue to lead us to be that one body? Continue to guide all of us, Lord. Continue to protect all of us, to keeping us from straying from without, outside of the body of Christ. Lord, to build one another up, to strive with one another, to correct one another, 
all for your glory, that we may display your perfect patience, the love of God in us to this world. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.